Mark chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 14 all the way through verse 20. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through verse 20. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. What was the core message of Jesus Christ? This is a question people have been asking for decades. What was he really about? And it seems like it would be self-explanatory and simple until you start to unpack and uncover all the different opinions from people about what Jesus was about. From one end of the spectrum to the other, he came for the forgiveness of sins. No, he came to make people holy. No, he came to speak truth to power. No, he came as a revolutionary. No, he came as a great teacher. No, he came as a prophet. Over and over, all of these various opinions about this man of mystery. And the funny thing is, a lot of those are true. In the same way that it, would, it could be said that if you were to take a a bolt out of the rearview mirror of your truck or your car and come up to me and say, this is a car. I would say, well, kind of. It's a part of a car. So all of those things, all of those opinions, a lot of those things, I should say, that we have in our minds about this man, Jesus Christ, might be true, but they're, they're just a part of the, the full vehicle you know what I love about Mark? Mark doesn't mince words. I know two Marks, and neither of them mince words. He gets straight to the point. And within the first chapter, he says what exactly Jesus' core message was. I'll just read it again for you. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So we have a couple words there. One of them is the gospel, the good news. Another word that if maybe you've heard it for a few years, or you've heard it a few times, you might even have a few opinions of what good news is. And yet Mark, I love it. He makes this so simple and so straightforward for us. Two times he mentions the gospel. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And then he says, repent and believe the gospel. And like a gospel sandwich, you know the good stuff's right in the middle. What does he say between both mentions of the gospel? He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, he's saying the kingdom of God, his rule and his reign are right now here. 
Now, he's not saying this as an opinion piece writer, you know? He's not saying, I know that the kingdom of God has arrived. It's over there somewhere. That's what I heard. Make no mistake, Jesus is saying, the good news that I came to talk about, my core message is that everything God stands for, everything God desires, everything that he wants has arrived with me. That was his core message. That is his core message, is that the kingdom of God has arrived in Jesus Christ. Now, this was the message he would go on to speak over and over. This is what the entire book of Mark is about. In fact, it's called the gospel according to Mark. And Jesus would go on for the rest of this book, for the rest of this gospel, speaking about the kingdom of God, how it applies to our life, what it looks like in relationship, what it looks like individually. But it starts right here with the proclaiming of the good news that God's kingdom has come in Jesus Christ. And then he gives us a way to access it. He says, now repent and believe in that. Now, there's another word that you might have a dozen connotations about, repentance. You might envision the fire and brimstone preacher that's telling you to change your life or to stop, you know, to knock off doing something that you were doing. And we've talked about repentance, that it means simply to change your mind about something. And that's true. But I really love what Mark does for us because he gives us a real-life embodied example of what it means to repent and believe in the message of Jesus. He gives us four examples, four people that would respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in repentance. And I want to read that to you before we dive into it. Starting in verse 16, it says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he sees Simon and Andrew the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus says to them, follow me. Follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of, of men, fishers of people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Does this a second time to a couple other fishermen. What Mark is doing right here is he's giving us a real-life embodied example of what it means to repent and to, to, to believe in the gospel of the kingdom. And it's all wrapped up in two of the most powerful words human beings have possibly ever heard. Follow me. That's the title of my sermon this morning is Follow Me. And to really unpack the sheer power and beauty of what Jesus was inviting those disciples to do, inviting us to do, we need a little bit of a history recap. I need to take you back to what it was like to be a Peter, what it was like to be an Andrew. So I'm going to spend a few minutes explaining a little bit of the backstory so that you understand fully what it means to follow Jesus. You got to understand that this relationship between a fisherman like Peter and a rabbi like Jesus wasn't just something that you could easily cruise into. There was an entire system of Jewish education starting at an early age of gauntlets and requirements that you had to move through just to get to that place. 
I want to take you there just for a few minutes so that you can see that not only does Jesus enter into that relationship, but he blows it out of the water. This type of journey, you've got to understand, starts at the age of five. For somebody like Peter, maybe you if you were living 2,000 years ago, it starts at the age of five where everybody at virtually the age of a toddler would begin school. Now, this would have been similar to our K through 12. Everybody goes to school. They all get educated from a certain age, except for them, it was from five to 10. And for us, we might study chemistry. We might study social science. We might study all sorts of different things. For a Jewish five-year-old in the, living in the first century, they would have been studying the scriptures. And their schooling, instead of K through 12, which we might call it, was called Bet Sefer. Bet meaning house, Sefer meaning book, the house of the book. And so from the beginning of your life, you would have been studying the book. What is the book? For them, it was the first five books of what we call our Bibles. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So from the age of a toddler to the age of 10, they would have been studying this. Now, they wouldn't just be studying this like a, 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 an extracurricular class at City College for 30 minutes in the morning every day. This would have been highly immersive, highly immersive. This would have been morning, noon, and night. I want to give you a little quote by the author Stephen Isaacs who describes it. He says, for an adolescent, the Torah, those are the first five books of the Bible, is everything. Six days a week, boys rise at 3 or 3.30 in the morning to go to the mikvah, the ritual bath. They're in school from 5.30 or 6 a.m. until nearly sundown, and then they return to the synagogue where they study it again. Then they eat supper, and then they return to the synagogue for their nightly study session. On Saturdays, the Sabbath, they're in the synagogue all day long. This was all you did as a child, you studied the first five books of the Bible religiously and emphatically. In fact, so intense was this learning process that by the age of 10, you would have memorized all five books of the Old Testament. Think about that. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy by the age of 10. How beautiful this was. Now, at this point, you would have some options. Most children from this point, K through 12, Bet Sefer, would go back to take on the job of their father. Some of them would have been masons, others would be carpenters, some would be fishermen. They would go and they would ply the trade of their father. But the best and the brightest of the class would move on to the second stage of education. This might be for us like college. For them, it was called Bet Talmud, or the house of learning. And in Bet Talmud, what would they learn? Well, they would learn all the commentary of some of the greatest sages and rabbis on the Torah. So in the beginning stages, they learned the scriptures. In the second stage, they would learn what everybody said about the scriptures. And they would deepen their understanding, every interpretation that's ever been put out there. Things like the Talmud and the Mishnah, they would devour these things and not just know word for word what the Bible said, but they would also know every single interpretation, including what they believed to be the best one. 
they would also go on to memorize the rest of what we call the Old Testament. By the time they were 10 years, uh, excuse me, by the time they were 13 years old, 13 or fi- uh, 14, they would have developed, after nearly a decade of intense religious study, an idea of what the best kind of life was like to live. And usually this was wrapped up in a rabbi that after a decade of study, they realized was the best one. So you can imagine this, after 10 years of studying something, they would start to realize, oh, I like this rabbi over here. His interpretation of God's word is the best. But their education wasn't like ours, where it's just about having right answers. They also embodied it, mind, body, and soul. And so they weren't just looking for a rabbi with good interpretation skills. They were looking for a rabbi who embodied the scriptures the best who had a worldview that informed everything that they believed and was carried out. They had a word for this. They called it a yoke. A yoke was a rabbi's interpretation of the word of God that they embodied in real life. And when you were 14 years old and you had gone all through it throughout that Jewish system of education, your dream at this point in your teenage life was to find that rabbi that you thought was the best so that you could follow them and become like them because they were the perfect, at least the best, embodiment of God to you. So after the second stage of education, they would, some of the best of the best, the very best in that group would move on to the third and final stage of education. This is called Bet Midrash. Now, this might be similar to getting a doctorate or a PhD. Very few children would ever make it this far. And at this point, you had a new opportunity. You were no longer in the classroom. You had an opportunity to go to your favorite rabbi and say, I love your yoke. I love the way you think and interpret God and the way that you live that out. And I want to be like you. Can I follow you? But it wasn't all downhill from there, or it wasn't all uphill from there. Uh, See, the rabbi was highly selective. They didn't just want anybody. The rabbi had a limited bandwidth. They could only take on a few students, and they wanted the very best students available. Why? Because the rabbi wanted to know that their students could become just like them because they wanted their students to go out into the world and to disseminate their yoke on the world. And so that rabbi would grill and pepper that student with a bunch of questions. Getting so hungry right now, grilled and peppered. They would bombard them with religious questions about anything and everything. And at the, at the end of that select few that made it through a decade worth of intensive study, he would say to the ones that they actually wanted, Lechakari, come and follow me. This was the process for apprenticing a famous rabbi. It was 10 years long, it was incredibly selective, Most people never made it that far, and even the ones who did might be rejected by a rabbi who just didn't have the space for them. Of course, most people never made it that far. Most of them went 
back to work for their dads. So against that backdrop, I want to read this text to you one more time. Verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus, the rabbi, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. You starting to see what's happening in the background here? What does this text tell you about Andrew and Simon Peter? They were fishermen. Why were they fishermen? Because that's what their dad did. Why were they working with their dad? Because they did not make it through the religious requirements of that day. They were not considered the most spiritual of the bunch. They did not pass all of the requirements by the spiritual elite of that day. They weren't smart enough. They weren't spiritual enough. They weren't quick enough. They weren't fill in the blank enough. They were working with their dad because they did not make it past the first stage of that culture's spirituality. What does this passage tell you about Jesus? We kind of flips the system on its head, doesn't he? Usually it's the student that comes to a rabbi and says, I want to follow you. Jesus comes up to a student, by the way, a student who never made it past the elementary level and says, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. Jesus walks up to somebody who didn't deserve it, who wasn't smart enough, who wasn't gifted enough, who was marginalized and ostracized, who was abandoned by the system of the day, who perhaps was gripped with shame, who was doing the very best that they could and was now working with their family and says, I choose you. So what's the takeaway here? Yes, God's kingdom has arrived in Jesus Christ. But based on this scene, we also need to make this clarification. Jesus isn't bringing the kingdom at you. He's bringing his kingdom to you. He's bringing it to people like Peter and Andrew and Mary Magdalene. He's bringing it to people who have no claim on God. He's bringing it right to their front yard and saying, I choose you. He comes to the people who need it the most, but whom the world and society have passed by, and he says, I choose you. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but I don't have my life together yet. I'm not spiritually knowledgeable yet. I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing right now. Let me get my life together right now. Let me try attending church a few times right now. Let me read the Bible more right now. Jesus has not required any of that from you at all. He says to you, like he says to Peter, I choose you, just follow me. I know that's the inclination that maybe I have, maybe some of us have. Well, I'll get my life together first. And then I'll do this thing with Jesus. Week after week, I run into people I haven't seen in a long time. I'm like, hey, bro. Hey, friend. 
so good to see you. I'd love to see you on Sunday. Let's worship together. And almost immediately, I can see it. Their demeanor changes. Their eyes droop down. And I've know, I know the look that I'm seeing because I've seen it for a decade. It's a look of shame. And then all the reasons. Well, I just need to get this thing going. Well, I just, you know, I need to get my life together. Or I'm going through this thing. Let me handle that, and then I'll come. I'll come worship with the, the family of Christ. It's this barrier of shame. It's that same lie that's been told by the devil to people for centuries. Get your life together, and then you can meet with God. It's the word of the ancient rabbis. It's the word of today's modern spiritual professionals. First, change yourself, and then you can follow me. But Jesus comes in on the scene, and he says, no, follow me, and I'll change you myself. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Can you imagine what that must have felt like to somebody like Peter? Whom society and the world and culture and the religious elite have passed by a long time ago? You can just see the scene. Jesus walking by, just kicking rocks by the Sea of Galilee, walks up to Peter and Andrew, and he's like, oh, that's a nice halibut. Hey, Peter, come with me, and I'll teach you how to catch people. And he walks off. Do you see against the background of what it meant to follow somebody like that, how thrilled somebody like Peter must have been to do it? And if there's any question, just look at his response. Immediately, Mark says. That's one of Mark's favorite words. He uses it like 50 or 60 times in this book. He uses it twice right here to describe the reaction of these future disciples. Immediately, they dropped everything and they followed after him. Now, Mark is giving us a vivid, visceral, visual example of what it means to believe in the gospel and repent. Some of you might think, well, it means to get my life together. It means I need to restore this relationship. It means I need to go to church more often. It, needs, it means I need to shape up. But Mark is telling us what it means. And we see it in the life of the disciples when they drop everything and follow Jesus. Now, a scene like this might not seem very radical to us because we leave our parents to go to college sometimes or to move to another city. And we're connected in a number of ways. This is not that scandalous. But 2,000 years ago, in a collectivist Middle Eastern society, this was almost an act of betrayal. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Left his dad, took his inheritance, scandalized his whole family? This is, this is what Peter is doing. He's leaving his career. Uh, he didn't have LinkedIn. He couldn't just find another career if this thing with Jesus didn't pan out. He was leaving everything. He left his career. He left his family, the anchor of society in that day, in order to follow Jesus. Now, listen, I could just end this sermon by saying, and this is how we re should respond to Jesus too. If you want to be serious about the gospel, you need to drop everything and take it seriously and surrender all and follow Jesus. 
And maybe if I said that, you would leave this parking lot feeling more of that shame. Oh, I can bar barely surrender in my relationships with my friends. I can barely consider others more important than myself, but the gospel is compelling me to give up everything in order to follow Jesus. So we could do that, but I don't want to, even though that's accurate. That is the response of a person who sees Jesus. What I want you to see today, though, is that Peter, James, John seemed to have seen something in Jesus that was so compelling and so alluring and so magnificent and so beautiful and so attractive. that they didn't need to think twice about giving up every single thing that they had. What I want to leave you with this morning is not, you need to give up everything to follow Jesus, even though that might be true. What I want you to see is, what did the disciples see in Jesus that would compel them to give up everything? What did the disciples see that would cause such a drastic change in their life? They must have seen something. They must have seen something in him that I desperately want to see too. In fact, the Apostle Paul would go on to write about this. He would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that God, like a light shining into our heart, uh, into a dark place, causes a light to shine into our hearts, revealing the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He would later go on to describe the Christian life in this way. He would say, we are, like we're looking in a mirror, beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed. My question I want to leave you with this morning is what did those disciples see? Because not only was it compelling enough for them to give up their careers and their family for, but 11 of those original 12 disciples would give up their lives. They were tortured and they would die. So here's my closing statement for you. I want you to ask yourselves honestly, and to reflect deeply, and to say, is, is the Christianity I have right now worth dying for? Is it like that? Is whatever I've created, spiritually speaking, that governs my life, is it worth giving up everything for? And listen, maybe your answer today is no. And I want you to sit 
with that answer without shame because healing starts with transparency and vulnerability. Because if Jesus is real, and I believe he is, and if the claims that he made are true, and he is who he said he is, as the one who is bringing God's kingdom to bear on a broken world, then I want to see what the original disciples saw. When I talk with friends and people in the, in, in the church, I don't know if you feel this way, but I see a lot of fatigue. Maybe you feel that way too. It's been a long year. Even though our schedules aren't as wild as they were in 2019, some of us still feel strangely and mysteriously tired, overwhelmed. And for a lot of people in the church, that's carried over into our spirituality. Maybe you are spiritually overwhelmed. And I want to invite you to consider something anew. Actually, I want to invite Robert and the rest of the team back up here as we respond in song. Because as we do, I want, I want to consider just the radical truth in this question. Is it possible that you're tired because you've overcomplicated things? You've added dozens and dozens of rules and regulations and processes and systems to this thing that was so simple and beautiful for a person like Peter. Is it possible that you've overcomplicated things? And is that the reason why so many of us are so tired. And if that's you, I've got good news of great joy for all the people. The same good news that's been proclaimed for 2,000 years, that the kingdom of God has come near to you in Jesus Christ. And I want to leave you with the invitation of Jesus himself, because the thing that he says to Peter, Simon Peter here, is the same thing that he would say to everybody. And I'm going to say that to you, and that's going to be the last thing you hear. And as you consider, have I been just crowding my, my life with too much stuff? I want you to hear this invitation of Jesus. And listen, I want you to see the beauty of Jesus who doesn't require anything from Peter or you except to accept his invitation and follow him. And so maybe even in our prayer lives, we try to overcomplicate things with words. And so I want to give you one simple way to respond. After I read this invitation from Jesus to you, maybe all you need to do today, you've done so much over the last year, maybe all you need to do right now is to simply say his name, Jesus as an open, conscious, intentional plea for the simple gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus himself to come and occupy that space in your heart once again. This is Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to read it and leave. And in your time, you can respond to your Lord. Who says this to you. Come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. God bless you as you respond to the Lord.